0: Forget the crap online and listen to Science Verses. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Nine-year-old Lorraine Snyder opened her eyes and groggily rolled over in her bed. She could tell by the light streaming through her window that it was well past dawn. She had stayed up so late the night before, all she wanted to do was slip back into sleep. But before she could, she heard a muffled noise outside her bedroom, her mother's plaintive voice calling her. Lorraine hurried out of bed and opened the door to find her mother, Ruth, sprawled on the floor. A knot formed in Lorraine's stomach. She knew immediately that something was horribly wrong. She rushed to her mother's side and spotted a cord wrapped loosely around Ruth's ankles. She reached out to tug on it, but Ruth pushed her hands away and told her to go call their neighbor for help. Lorraine heard the panic in Ruth's voice and it terrified her. Why was her mother lying on the floor? Why was she tied up? But Ruth stopped her. In a shrill, quavering voice, Ruth ordered Lorraine to run to the phone immediately. This time, Lorraine obeyed. She called their neighbor and asked her to come over as soon as she could. As Lorraine hung up the phone, she thought of one final, unnerving question. Where was her father? Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast Original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we explored the unhappy marriage of Ruth and Albert Snyder. They were together for over 10 years, but after Ruth started an affair with a man named Judd Gray, she started looking for a way to leave her husband. She took out a life insurance policy on Albert in 1925, and she began working out a plan to kill her husband and collect the money. This week, we'll talk about how her scheme played out and the public spectacle that followed. On the night of March 19, 1927, Albert and Ruth Snyder took their nine-year-old daughter, Lorraine, to a party at their neighbor's house in Queens Village, New York. There, 32-year-old Ruth, flied 45-year-old Albert with drinks for hours. Meanwhile, Ruth's lover, Judd Gray, secretly left a hotel in Syracuse where he was staying on a business trip. He took the train into New York, entered the Snyders' house, and waited in the spare bedroom until they returned. The Snyders came home around 2 o'clock in the morning. Ruth put Lorraine to bed. Then, while Albert undressed, she snuck down the hall to see Judd. After confirming that he had stuck to the plan, Ruth went back to the bedroom, got undressed and rested by Albert's side. When she was certain that he'd fallen asleep, she returned to the spare bedroom to get Judd. Ruth led Judd from the bedroom, turned and asked him, to which Gray replied, I think I can. Judd had brought a bottle of chloroform and some rags along with a window sash weight he'd purchased a few weeks before, specifically for the deed. Ruth and Judd crept back into the master bedroom where Albert lay sleeping. Judd moved slowly to the side of the bed, then smashed Albert's skull with the sash weight. Incredibly, the blow did not kill Albert. Instead, he woke up leapt from the bed, grabbed Judd by the tie, and began to throttle him. Judd dropped the window sash weight in shock. Ruth quickly picked it up and struck her husband until he let go of her lover. At some point, Albert was incapacitated. Judd said he had forgotten all about the chloroform, but Ruth must have applied it to Albert's face. Finally. Albert lay still. Ruth recalled the murder differently. She claimed that she changed her mind about killing Albert at the last second and tried to talk Judd out of it. In the middle of their argument, she stopped to use the toilet. While she was in the bathroom, she heard a thud and raced into the master bedroom to discover Judd had smashed Albert over the head with the sash weight. Either way, Albert Snyder, who lay dead in his bedroom. Afterward, Judd and Ruth, shaken by the killing, sat on the stairs together. Ruth slumped against the wall by the stairs. The job was done. It was messy and horrifying, but finished. Now there was blood everywhere. On her nightgown and robe, Judd's shirt. It was ghastly. Ruth looked over at her lover. He seemed stunned. He was holding a bottle of whiskey, taking long pulls from it with shaking hands. She wouldn't have minded a drink herself. It might steady her. But suddenly, a thought occurred to her that settled her nerves even more than a drink. She would never have to worry about money again. Albert was dead, and she'd be paid a fortune. Ruth's expression twisted into a grim smirk. It didn't matter if she had to clean up buckets of blood. Who cared about the gruesome details? She was free and soon she'd be rich. When the milkman stopped by the house around 430 in the morning, Judd and Ruth were still sitting on the steps. They realized it would soon be dawn, and they had to confront the reality of what they'd done. Judd and Ruth decided to cover up their crime by making it look like a robbery gone bad, though their official accounts differ. At this point, it's generally thought that Judd used towels to tie up Albert's arms and legs while Ruth retrieved Albert's gun. She set it on the floor next to the bed so it would look like Albert had attempted to shoot the intruders. Then, Judd and Ruth ransacked the house. They overturned furniture, tossed couch cushions on the floor, and knocked down shelves. Ruth took several pieces of jewelry, three rings and a silver pen, and hid them under a mattress. At one point, though he claimed that Ruth must have done this part, Judd apparently worried whether Albert was really dead. He went back to the bedroom and tightened a length of picture wire around Albert's neck, like a garrote. Afterward, he was certain Albert was gone. Ruth and Judd next turned their sights on the evidence linking them to the crime. They burned their blood-stained clothing and Ruth gave Judd one of Albert's shirts to wear. Then they hid the window sash weight in a toolbox in the cellar. Finally, Ruth asked Judd to strike her over the head to make it seem as if she had been attacked as well. Judd refused to hit her, but he did tie up Ruth's ankles with clothesline before leaving the house. Judd wanted to return to Syracuse as quickly as possible. He'd hoped that his business trip would provide him with an alibi. For that to work, he had to make it look like he had never left his hotel. He took a bus to the Jamaica subway station in Queens, but discovered the trains wouldn't be running until 8 a.m. Instead, he took a taxi to Manhattan's Grand Central Station where he boarded the morning train to upstate New York. Back at the Snyder House, Ruth lay on the ground waiting to be discovered. But after a while, she grew tired of waiting. She called out to her daughter, Lorraine and asked the girl to phone their neighbor Lorraine told her, come over to our house quick. Mama is very sick. When the neighbor arrived, she found Ruth lying on the landing of the stairs. Ruth told her she had been unconscious for at least the past five hours, claiming she'd received a blow to the head. The neighbor called over her husband who searched the house. He discovered Albert's body almost immediately and called the police. Just after 8 a.m., detectives arrived at the scene, along with an ambulance and a doctor. The physician examined Ruth, but he could find no evidence that she had been hit over the head or knocked unconscious. The detectives questioned Ruth closely. She told them truthfully that the family had gone to a bridge party the night before. She said her husband drank a great deal and had fallen asleep immediately after the party. Ruth. Then claimed that she'd heard a noise downstairs. When she went to investigate, a dark haired man stepped out of the shadows and hit her over the head. Ruth said the man looked Italian. As proof, she produced scraps of an Italian language newspaper, claiming the intruder had left them in the house. In the first few decades of the 20th century, xenophobic sentiment against Italian immigrants and descendants was extreme. The United States Immigration Commission even released a report in 1911 stating, certain kinds of criminality are inherent in the Italian race. In the popular mind, crimes of personal violence, robbery, blackmail, and extortion are peculiar to the people of Italy. Ruth thought that she might gain sympathy by pinning her husband's murder on Italian immigrants. Before I continue with Ruth's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Ruth's plan fit in with a long history of racial hoaxes in which white women have falsely accused members of a marginalized group of a crime, A famous case occurred in 1994 when a white woman, Susan Smith, murdered her children and then invented a fictitious black man whom she accused of carjacking her and kidnapping her children. Legal scholar Catherine Russell Brown identified as many as 67 similar cases between 1987 and 1996. In her study, Russell found that, in a number of cases, The hoax was created with great attention to detail, sometimes bordering on a malevolent fantasy. Ruth's fantasy may have been about getting attention as much as it was about her husband's insurance payout. Bonnie Jacobson, a psychologist and director of the New York Institute for Psychological Change in New York City, said that people who fake crimes seek the attention they get by playing a victim. Jacobson drew comparisons between their motivations and people with Munchausen syndrome, who fake severe illness to get sympathy from loved ones. Whatever her motivations, Ruth described her attacker to police as a swarthy man with a black mustache. But despite her vivid tale, detectives were skeptical. She had no injury suggesting a blow to the head. Her ankles had been tied together, but not her wrists leading police to wonder why she hadn't simply untied herself. Detectives also noticed that there was no sign of forced entry. On top of that, the ransacked house raised even more suspicions. A professional thief wouldn't have wasted time throwing around couch cushions and emptying kitchen cupboards where no valuables were likely to be found. The whole thing looks staged. A detective told Ruth outright that he didn't believe her house had been burglarized, to which Ruth responded, what do you mean? How could you tell? He replied, we see a lot of burglaries. They are not done this way. The police's subsequent search of the house confirmed the detective's suspicions. They found the jewelry Ruth had hidden under the mattress. Clearly, no one had stolen them. Ruth's robbery story was falling apart. Authorities also found other items in their search that piqued their interest, including several canceled checks to an insurance company. When they questioned Ruth about her husband's insurance, she lied, telling them that he only had a $1,000 policy, neglecting to mention the $50,000 policy with a double indemnity clause she'd taken out the previous year. Detectives also found canceled checks Ruth had made out to Judd Gray. Ruth was evasive and tried to change the subject when police asked her who he was. Officers spent the whole day interrogating Ruth in her house. They also spoke to several of her neighbors who mentioned that Ruth and Albert often argued and that Ruth frequently stayed out late into the night. By 5 p.m., they had enough suspicions to bring Ruth to the Jamaica police precinct. At the precinct, questioning continued for several more hours. Despite the detective's open disbelief, Ruth stuck to her robbery story. The detectives confronted Ruth with her neighbor's allegations that she often stayed out late at night. Ruth admitted to this, but claimed it was because she spent a lot of time with her cousin, Ethel Anderson. Detectives discovered that cousin Ethel was married to a police patrolman in the Bronx, They called the patrolman to the Jamaica precinct and asked him what he knew about Ruth Snyder. They wanted to know who she was friendly with. The patrolman recalled seeing Ruth with one man in particular, Judd Gray. One of the detectives, Lieutenant Michael McDermott, wrote the name down on a piece of paper. At around 1.30 in the morning, the lieutenant returned to Ruth. He held out the piece of paper and asked her, is that the man who killed your husband?" To which Ruth replied, he did it. Coming up, Ruth Snyder and Judd Gray turn against each other as their case becomes a tabloid sensation. Now, back to the story. In the early morning hours of Sunday, March 19th, 1927, 32-year-old Ruth Snyder and her lover, Judd Gray, bludgeoned Albert Snyder to death while he lay sleeping in bed. They attempted to cover up the murder by making it look like a robbery gone bad. But when police arrived the next morning and questioned Ruth, her story quickly unraveled. By Monday morning, she had confessed, naming 34-year-old Judd as the murderer. Ruth also told police where to find him He had taken the train to Syracuse, New York, shortly after the murder. When Judd reached Syracuse, he immediately met with a friend, Haddon Gray. Judd told Haddon that he had gone to Ruth's house in Queens Village, but while he was there, two robbers broke into the house. Judd claimed he hid while the robbers attacked Ruth and her husband. When he emerged from his hiding place, he found the house empty except for Albert's dead body. He fled the home, fearing he'd be blamed for the murder. Haddon apparently bought the story and vowed to keep Judd's secret. He then invited Judd to his home for dinner. The men had several drinks and spent the evening playing marbles with Haddon's children. Before leaving that night, Judd promised to return to visit them the next day. Then he went back to his hotel. He was just about to go to bed when the Syracuse police arrived to question him. Judd was taken to the Syracuse police station. During questioning, he maintained that he hadn't left Syracuse since Friday evening. He felt confident that the business trip provided him with the perfect alibi. But while he was being interrogated, a hotel maid began the process of cleaning his room. When she emptied out the trash bin, she found a torn ticket stub from his Sunday morning train ride from Grand Central Station to Syracuse. She immediately turned the ripped ticket over to the authorities. During the questioning, police officers didn't let on that they had evidence Judd was lying. When Lieutenant McDermott and his partner arrived in Syracuse to escort Judd back to Queens, he left in good spirits. He seemed cheerful on the train ride and even attempted to make friends with Lieutenant McDermott, trying to make him laugh with jokes and stories. His good mood lasted until about an hour into the journey when Lieutenant McDermott remarked, Judd, you know we have the contents of your wastebasket in the hotel. Judd became quiet, realizing he was caught. Then he launched into a confession. When the group arrived at the Jamaica precinct in Queens, Judd put his statement in writing and was formally placed under arrest. Later that morning, both Judd and Ruth were taken to the Jamaica town hall for their preliminary arraignment. By some accounts, the pair reached out and touched hands as they were taken into the courtroom. Both entered pleas of not guilty. Although Ruth had made a confession to police, her lawyer repudiated it in court on the ground that it was made under duress and force. Judd's attorney also lamented his client's confession, saying, they've talked themselves into a bad fix. This is what comes of persons talking before they engage counsel. After the arraignment, Ruth and Judd were taken to the Queens County Jail and placed in cells on opposite sides of the building. They had barely slept since the murder. For the first time in two days, they could escape the questions of reporters, lawyers, and police officers. They were finally able to rest. But Ruth and Judd's family members weren't so lucky. From the moment Albert's death was made public, journalists latched onto the story. The flashy details caught their attention. Headlines emphasized the lurid affair between the flapper and the lingerie salesman. But after highlighting the sex angle, reporters turned their attention to the unremarkable nature of the suspects. Ruth and Judd were not remarkable individuals, but somehow the fact only added to the story's intrigue. The murder made people question the character of their friends and neighbors. After all, if two middle-class everyday American citizens could act so brutally, then anybody could. As journalist Zoe Beckley wrote, for here are a man and woman exactly like the man and woman who ride next to us in the subway or the couple in the seats behind ours at the theater. People who look like us, act like us, seem like us, live like us, think like us, and to all outward appearances are like us. Yet are Ruth Snyder and Judd Gray like us? Are we like them? Are we apt to slip the cable of our self-control at any minute and do as they did? There is the mystery. Nearly a century later, the mystery of what drives someone to commit murder still fascinates people, to the extent that we even turn it into entertainment. In a 2011 article, criminal forensic psychologist Paul G. Matuzzi wrote about the public's obsession with violent crime. He referred to murder as a most fundamental taboo, and also, perhaps, a most fundamental human impulse. He concluded, We are fascinated because we wonder, would I have felt the same way, had the same impulse, and would I have done the same thing? In 1927, these questions were compelling enough to turn Albert Snyder's murder into a national sensation. In the week after the murder, journalists hounded Judd's wife, who was still reeling from the news of his arrest. One reporter even contacted his 10-year-old daughter school, hoping to get an interview with her. Journalists also sought out Ruth's mother, Granny Brown, who eventually gave a press conference to proclaim her daughter innocent. Ruth herself was bombarded with interview requests, and for the most part, she seemed all too happy to participate in the spectacle. She gamely posed for photographs, issued statements to the press, and agreed to several interviews. Ruth couldn't help feeling a rush of excitement. She had spent so many dull years with Albert. Now, something different was finally happening to her people were paying attention to her they wanted to photograph her and hear her speak it was like being a movie star of course it wasn't all roses but ruth thought that if she had to be accused of murder she might as well find some excitement in it her lawyers felt differently however they chastised her telling her to look the part of the grieving widow they reminded her that her life was on the line But Ruth didn't want to worry about that. And really, Judd was the one who'd picked up the window sash and smashed Albert over the head with it. He was the killer, not her. Surely, the world would see that. So Ruth allowed herself the small pleasure of being famous. Right now, it was the only thrill she had. Although she seemed to enjoy the attention The coverage Ruth received from the media was far from sympathetic. The Brooklyn Daily Times categorized Ruth as a Viking type, ruthless when opposed. A woman cold, calculating, shrewd, and with nerves of iron. A woman who would sacrifice family, friends, good name and honor to gratify a whim of the flesh. A woman with bloodlust in her veins that same newspaper seemed markedly less hostile towards Judd Gray, remarking, he has the appearance of frailty and timidity. A glance at the two convinces one that Ruth Snyder was the ruling spirit, the dominant personality. Judd's friends and family bolstered this characterization, calling Judd a naive man led astray by a merciless siren. Hannon Gray told the press, The woman must have had him hypnotized. Judd himself blamed his downfall on bad liquor and evil women, a combination too strong for any man. Some reports luridly speculated that Ruth had ensnared Judd to do her bidding through abnormal sex practices. Within a few weeks, Ruth was compared to every female temptress from the biblical Eve to Lady Macbeth. These gendered condemnations of women who commit violent crimes are not uncommon even today. Scottish barrister, Helena Kennedy, who represented murderer Myra Henley, found that the public often reacts more harshly to female defendants. In her 2019 book, she wrote, we feel differently about a woman doing something consciously cruel because of our expectations of women as the nurturing sex. The adage is that women who commit crime are mad, bad or sad. The bad may be few in number, but once given the label, there is no forgiving. Ruth tried to strike back against this perception. In a scathing statement, she called Judd a low, cringing, sneaking jackal. The murderer of my husband, who is now trying to hide behind my skirts to try to drag me into the stinking pit but Ruth's colourful language did little to change public opinion. It also didn't help that Judd seemed to embrace religion during his jail stay. He spent much of the time in his cell reading the Bible and made a show of being moved to tears during the church services held at the jail chapel. He appeared to be a redeemed sinner. In contrast, Ruth seemed glib and unrepentant. She frequently joked and bantered with jail matrons, She was apparently incapable of overcoming her brash, party girl image. One night, when a ukulele band played outside her jail cell window, she commented, I wish I had a dance floor and a good partner. She also obsessed about her appearance. She asked for and was granted permission to keep a curling iron in her cell, and sometimes passed the time by giving herself manicures with a matchstick. Once again, the public found her behavior far from endearing. Reporter Joseph Van Ralta called Judd Gray a tragic figure and a subject for pity, while characterizing Ruth as unutterably brutal, cruel, cowardly, perverted and stupid. Ruth's own neighbor, who had hosted the party Ruth and Albert attended on the night of the murder, was quoted as saying, I absolutely despise her. If anyone had to be killed, it should have been Mrs. Snyder. Ruth could only hope that her jury might be more sympathetic. She and Judd would soon go to trial for first-degree murder. They knew that a conviction would lead to an automatic death sentence. Judd Gray and Ruth Snyder were now fighting for their lives. Up next The Snyder murder case goes to trial. Now, back to the story. In March of 1927, 32-year-old Ruth Snyder and 34-year-old Judd Gray were arrested for the murder of Ruth's husband, Albert. A few weeks later, on Monday, April 18, 1927, Ruth and Judd's trial for first-degree murder commenced. Thousands of people mobbed the courthouse, hoping to catch a glimpse of the defendants. Attendees included filmmaker D.W. Griffith, who arrived in a limousine. He told reporters he was thinking about directing a movie based on the case. So many stars from Broadway and vaudeville also showed up, that spectators began referring to their seating area as the actor's equity section. Representatives from every major newspaper were in attendance, They all came to see a show, but they may have been disappointed by the initial proceedings. Before the trial could begin, the judge first had to select an impartial jury. This proved to be a difficult task. Since the case had already been discussed so much in the press, it had made a strong impression on the public. When the lawyers asked whether the potential jurors had already formed an opinion on the guilt or innocence of the defendants, Many admitted that they had. These individuals were excused for bias. This stretched the jury selection process over several days as dozens of prospective jurors were eliminated. The defendants found the process tedious. After the first day, Ruth told reporters, I don't understand why they brought me into the courtroom to listen to such a monotonous proceeding. I would like a little excitement to relieve the monotony. But despite Ruth's clear distaste for the selection process, the media seemed to blame her for the delays. One reporter suggested that Ruth and her lawyer were trying to fill the jury box with naive men Ruth could manipulate and dominate with her willful sexuality, just as she had dominated Judd Gray. Ruth publicly rejected that theory, in fact, She lamented the fact that under New York law, the jury would be comprised solely of men. Women were not allowed to serve in murder trials. In response to this, Ruth commented that a woman could see her side of the case better than a crowd of men. By the end of the week, 12 men were selected. Ruth and Judd could only stare at the faces of those who had the power to condemn them to death. With the trial underway, the attorneys began calling witnesses to the stand. Both Ruth and Judd testified at length. They both admitted that they were in the house during the slaying, but each blamed the other party for the deed itself. Both Ruth and Judd portrayed themselves as reluctant participants in the murder scheme. It seemed that if they couldn't convince the jury to acquit, They at least hope to receive a lesser verdict of second degree rather than first degree murder. Then they might escape with a 10 to 20 year prison term rather than an execution. The trial concluded on Monday, May 9, 1927, after 11 days. The jury deliberated for only about 90 minutes. They returned with a unanimous verdict, finding both defendants guilty of murder in the first degree. The judge sentenced them to death by electrocution as required by law. Judd remained stoic at the news. Ruth initially collapsed in tears, but seemed to recover quickly. After the hearing, she asked whether they were permitted to make stops on the way to Sing Sing. She reportedly said that she'd like to take a detour for a lobster dinner at her favorite roadhouse. This request was denied. The following Monday, she was transported to Sing Sing Penitentiary. It was time to leave the county jail. Ruth felt an odd sense of nostalgia wash over her at the thought of going away. It could have been worse, this place. She'd found some comforts at least. She tried to look back on the few bright spots over the last few months. She had tamed a mouse that crept into her cell by feeding it crumbs. It struck her as funny, given how Albert never let her have a pet. She'd also befriended the jail's chaplain, Reverend Father George Murphy. She was sure he would speak well of her to the press, and the jail matrons were pleasant to her. She wished them all goodbye as the deputy sheriffs led her away. Outside, it was cloudy. Sunshine might have been nicer, but Ruth was looking forward to the car ride upstate. Climbing into the gray sedan, she could pretend she was going on a lovely trip, a vacation away from the city crowds. Reporters surrounded the car, calling out their questions, asking how she felt. They seemed to expect her to cry or wail. They looked eager to see her tears, but Ruth didn't see much point in that anymore. Deputy sheriffs escorted the prisoners out of the Queens County Jail. As they departed for Sing Sing, Ruth seemed cheerful. She told reporters she had recently found solace in the Catholic faith she wished to convert. The statement was met with skepticism. Some suggested that Ruth was only trying to win sympathy from New York Governor Alfred Smith, a Catholic who held the power of granting her clemency. If this was her motivation, it didn't work. Governor Smith heard Ruth and Judd's clemency petition, but ultimately denied it. Their sentence was to be carried out on January 12, 1928, nearly 10 months after Albert Snyder's murder. On the night of the 12th, over 40 spectators assembled to view the executions. Ruth Snyder was brought in first. Witnesses said that her face was red from crying. As she was led to the electric chair and strapped in, she repeated, Jesus have mercy on me for I have sinned. One of the witnesses was Tom Howard, a Chicago Tribune photographer who was working with the New York daily news to preserve the solemnity of the occasion. Journalists were instructed not to bring any cameras, but Tom had strapped a custom made one shot camera to his ankle. The moment the executioner flipped the switch as electricity coursed through Ruth's body, Tom took his shot. The photograph appeared the next day beneath a one-word headline, dead. The macabre image provided a final titillating morsel to satisfy the public's morbid interest in the case. The Daily News normally had a circulation of about one million papers, When the photograph ran the day after the execution, circulation swelled to one and a half million. According to author and research scholar Landis McKellar, it was the largest sale of any single paper on any single day in American history. The execution was otherwise uneventful. Within minutes, Ruth was pronounced dead. judd gray soon followed her he remained mostly silent only speaking to utter the 23rd psalm before the executioner flipped the switch the lord is my shepherd i shall not want ruth snyder and judd gray died with little drama but this is perhaps typical at executions psychologist nathan a heflick a lecturer at the university of lincoln in the uk study the last words of the hundreds of death row inmates. He said, When reading these last statements, I was expecting to see evidence of fear and panic. I was struck that there was very little evidence of this in these statements. Most, he said, chose to express religion and spirituality, love and appreciation, activism, forgiveness, claims of innocence, and for a small portion, silence. After the executions, the bodies were released to the prisoners' families for burial the following day. Ruth Snyder, born with the name Mamie Ruth Brown, was buried with a tombstone reading May R. Brown. At least in death, she could escape nicknames like Ruthless Ruth, which had followed her since her arrest. Once the executions were over, Public interest in the case markedly dropped. Reporters moved on to the next scandal, but the affair of Ruth Snyder and Judd Gray didn't completely disappear from memory. Their story was the basis for a stage play by Sophie Treadwell entitled Machinal, a tragedy in 10 episodes, which had a successful run in 1928 and 1929. Clark Gable, at the time still a relatively unknown actor, played the role based on Judd Gray. Journalist and novelist James M. Kane also used Albert Snyder's murder as inspiration for his novel, Double Indemnity. The book was adapted into an Academy Award-nominated film starring Barbara Stanwyck. Stanwyck's chilling performance offered audiences a cautionary tale, echoing Judd Gray's 1927 warning against bad liquor and evil women. But the film is perhaps even more cynical than the events on which it is based. In her final moments, Stanwyck's character admits that she never had any feelings for her lover. She only used him to get what she wanted. She says this right before Fred McMurray's character shoots and kills her. Unlike these characters, Ruth Snyder and Judd Gray clearly held affection for each other. And even after an ugly trial in which the two defendants turned against one another, some of that affection still lingered. According to reports, less than a week before her execution, Ruth Snyder asked for permission to send a short farewell letter to Judd Gray. Judd Gray received the letter and was touched enough to write a note in reply. In their final days, the two accomplices did not seem to bear each other any ill will. Judd's final words on the subject were, I am very glad. I had hoped she would forgive me. I hope God will forgive both of us. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode you can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crime's a Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Drew Cole. I'm Lainey Hobbs.